today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. 11 dead after Saturday, uh, Saturday shooting at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. Vigils have been held for the victims. Uh, here is what here is uh, what the mayor of the city, uh, this is Mayor uh, Bill Padu, uh, Paduto, has to say about what went on. The approach that we need to be looking at is how we take the guns which is the common denominator of every mass shooting in America, out of the hands of those that are looking to express hatred through murder. All right, there you have it. Here we go again, I guess. Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News based out of Washington. He is with us now. Reggie, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Reggie, are you there? Hey, I'm here. All right. Thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Here we go again. Uh, What's the buzz? Is it just another sense of here we go again? Well, I mean, this is kind of the situation that's been going on across the country now for years and years now. You see these, uh, you know, these big incidents that involve mass shootings where there's a number of people killed. Uh, you know, we'll see uh, a number of lawmakers offer thoughts and prayers. We'll see the president make a couple of conversations about it. And then it'll be just a cycle that continues on forward. Uh, where we are right now in this investigation is, you know, a 46-year-old man walking into a synagogue, shooting 11 people, killing them, leaving them dead on the ground. And uh, now, you know, facing dozens and dozens of charges, which he's expected to be up against when he makes his court appearance in about 45 minutes. Very odd that this man was taken alive, don't you find? Absolutely. I mean, in these situations, we usually end up with uh, with a suspect either taking their own lives or being killed at the hands of emergency officials that have been responding to the scene. It's not often that we end up with a suspect who is alive, who can you know potentially give some uh, some uh, insight into what the motive might have been, who might be able to uh, provide a few, a few more details to help investigators. So that's what we're going to be looking at as the days and weeks go forward as to what was the motive behind this shooting. What do we know about this uh, shooter? Well, we know he's 46 years old. We know he lived in the area for a couple of years. But according to neighbors, according to you know people who lived right next door to him, uh, he kept mostly to himself. They called him, quote, very unremarkable, normal, uh, that he would exchange pleasantries while he was on the street. Uh, there's no known employment records for the suspect, Robert Bowers, and uh, uh, family when they were contacted. No one was answering their phones. No one was uh, answering when door knocks were taking place. So there's a there's a you know, a, a missing link when it comes to the history of Bowers, with the exception of social media, where he actually left a fairly big footprint. Um, it seems that, or we've heard reports that this this person was mad at Donald Trump for his sympathy for Jewish people. Well, that's what we're hearing right now. You know, the president is not somebody who is uh, who, 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 you know, puts anti-Semitic uh, statements out there. He's very close with uh, the Jewish community. His son-in-law, Jared Kushner, is Jewish. His daughter converted to Judaism. He's very close with with uh, Israel and with uh, with their leader, Benjamin Netanyahu. So this is a president who stands strongly by Israel. And we're hearing that the suspect didn't like that. This suspect had made uh, social media posts. He had he had uh, discussed uh, how how Jewish people in America were kind of taking control and they were causing a genocide to Americans and this is something that he felt was you know an impediment to his life and an impediment to the way that America was working and wasn't happy about the fact that the president and 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 the president's uh, close advisors and and parts of the president's family had ties to the Jewish community so did he do we know anything more about this suspect having any hate ons for any other group why Jews this is that's what investigators are going to be looking at right now. We just we know that he has made social media posts uh, uh, kind of using racial insensitivities towards the Jewish community. And that's what they're going to be looking at right now. We don't know of any other kind of uh, anger or hostility towards any other group out there. Uh, just the words, you know, he said something along the lines of the Jewish people were invading America. So that's uh, that's what investigators are looking at right now. It appears to be a targeted attack along, uh, against a very select group of people. Uh, Donald Trump's uh, reaction to all of this, how's that playing? I guess at one point he said that there should be armed guards standing by these places of worship. Yes. Now, the, the president did condemn these attacks within, uh, you know, a matter of, of minutes after uh, after uh, reports of this had been going on. He called the act evil. He said that this person needs to be prosecuted. He said he should be facing the death penalty. And then he did make that comment saying that perhaps if an armed guard was at the synagogue, uh, this may have stopped it. There have been some uh, some people from within the religious community, some religious leaders saying armed guards aren't going to do anything because all that does is rationalize the behavior. And what we need to try and do is eliminate this behavior from ever making its way 
to the front door of, uh, of a place of worship or to the front door of any building. So putting an armed guard in there, it, it very well may have stopped something, but it could have also just put another target for this person to shoot. Well, that's what I'm thinking here, Reggie. I mean, anyone with with a brain in their head would say, gee whiz, if you're if you're. Um, uh, challenged enough to, to do, disenfranchised enough to do such a thing, all you would do is take the armed guard out first. Absolutely, and that's kind of a, that's a, that's a statement that the NRA always makes is you know like good guys with guns will always stop a bad guy with a gun, but that's not always what the case ends up being. We know that somebody who can walk in and shoot eleven people would have no problem shooting twelve people if it was an armed guard sitting there. So you know, making sure that people don't have access to guns, or making sure that gun registries or that uh, that you know there's any kind of background check that can prevent somebody from getting a gun. That's where this conversation, like we see in every mass shooting that takes place in this country, the conversation comes around. How do we turn? Uh, gun laws and how do we how do we make this become a, a you know a deeper thing for us to be looking at as opposed to just offering thoughts and prayers uh, where is the NRA on this have they commented we haven't heard any comment from the NRA we haven't actually heard any kind of comment from within the administration when it comes to guns at this point which is bizarre because this is what we normally hear when an incident like this happens say back in Parkland where the NRA was quick to speak out we were quick to hear from people that said that this wasn't a gun issue this was you know a person's issue this was a mental health issue we are not hearing anything about that right now. We're still seeing both sides of the aisle come together to say that this is a time for mourning. Uh, you know, a place of worship should be a place of sanctuary. These kinds of things shouldn't be happening inside of a church or a mosque or a synagogue or anything like this. So that's kind of where the conversation is right now. Uh, gun issue, one thing. Divisiveness, another. Uh, is there any correlation between the anger here of this guy and the guy that's sending pipe bombs around? I mean, you know, we, we certainly can't blame Donald Trump for everything going on in the world, but is there some sort of coincidence happening here? There's a lot of angry people. There are a lot of angry people, and there's a lot of angry tone that's that's kind of out there in the general public for people to be listening to and for people to be reading about. You know, I don't think that people want to be sitting there putting all of this blame for this incident on Donald Trump, whether it's a symptom or a cause. Uh, you know, whether the, the fact the question is being asked so regularly, is Trump to blame for this, you know, kind of speaks to the climate. But, you know, the, the, the person who carried out this attack right now is different from the person who carried out the attack when it came to uh, those pipe bombs last week, because one of them appeared to be Political. One of them appeared to be, uh, you know, a, a religious bias right. that this person had. So, right. you know, it, what we're hearing when it comes to the divisiveness and the comments from people in the administration or the president himself may be interpreted by some people, but it's not always the same thing. People worried about copycats in this sort of uh, it, with this issue, with this this much anger in the world. That's always a possibility. There's always the chance that somebody's going to go out there and carry out the same thing because either the focus is being put on one place so it leaves another place more vulnerable or because they just see that it's been done and now it gives them an opportunity to take what they've learned and go out there. That's what law enforcement is going to be doing right now. There is going to be a stepped up police uh, force uh, um, around uh, houses of worship across the country right now just to prevent anything like this from happening. Uh, is anybody in the White House talking about the divisiveness tone of the president and perhaps maybe he should just calm it down? Well, I mean, Kellyanne Conway was on Fox News this morning, and she was basically saying that the president is, uh, in effect, trying to heal and unite the country. These are the words that we heard from Donald Trump when he was in Illinois just a couple of days ago. But the moment that Kellyanne Conway said this, it was literally just a couple of moments later, the president made a tweet where he again called out the media, called the media the enemy of the people, said that it's the media's fault that uh, messages are being misconstrued and put out there in the wrong way and trying to place the blame somewhere else. So the president and the administration, they can sit there and say that he's trying to mend the country, he's trying to heal things, but he uses his words by himself and his tweets, as everybody says in the administration, they speak for themselves. It's it's a different tone once the president actually opens his mouth. Not to tie these two issues together in regard to uh, the, the, the letter bombing suspect, uh, it's almost as if one takes the attention away from the other. These things are happening so quick. Well, that's what happens with any of these situations. I mean, you know, the, the, the climate down here, whether it's political, whether it's, uh, whether it's any kind of violence, you know, it's, it's saturated by what's going on right now. And you kind of forget what happened yesterday and what happened last week. It's, if you look at the political climate right now heading into the midterm elections, we all thought that this was going to be very gun related because of the incident that happened in Parkland, Florida in February. Guns then disappeared from the picture and we started talking about uh, the Supreme Court. That then disappeared from the picture. We start talking about pipe bombs. There is a, a, there's a, a problem throughout the United States where there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of conversations in the moment about that violence, but there's very little done to roll it forward and figure out a common way to fix all the problems that are happening.
Is there any reason for you to believe, Reggie? I mean, you're down there. You're living in this. Is there any reason for you to believe the shooting will be any different than any of the others you've mentioned? Well, I mean, you have to just look at history. Look at all of the big shootings that have taken place, whether it's Parkland, whether it's a church in South Carolina where somebody walks in and shoots a number of African-American people, whether it's somebody trying to shoot a church in Tennessee last week and they can't get in, so they go to a grocery store and they shoot somebody and they kill a couple of people. Gun violence is an issue that happens in the United States. It's an issue that sparks up a conversation. You have one side that says, now's the time to act. We cannot let another one of these incidents happen. And then you have the other side saying, now's not the time to be talking about legislation. Now's the time to be offering thoughts and prayers. This is a wash, rinse, repeat cycle. <laughs> is it ever? Holy smokes. Um, okay, so going back to uh, the letter bomb issue, since you got your finger on the pulse of all of this, we're hearing reports today that CNN got another one. Absolutely. That's what we're hearing out of Atlanta right now. There was a uh, package that was addressed to uh, CNN. We don't know who it was addressed to uh, personally, but CNN was the was the main addressee on this label. Uh, it was intercepted at an Atlanta area postal uh, sorting facility. That area has now been, uh, the building's been evacuated. The area around that has been uh, shut down. They're not letting people in and out of that. We don't know any other details. We don't know if there was actually something inside of this package that could have been a bomb linked to what was going on last week. That's part of the investigation right now. So, uh, again, having the two bombs linked, do we know if uh, this was sent after the, the uh, initial alleged letter bomber was captured or was this late mail delivery or is this someone else doing it? That's what part of this investigation is going to look at. I mean, look, this person was taken into custody last week, but that you know doesn't say that he was able to get anything else into the mail before he was taken, uh, put in, under arrest. You know, a lot of times mail slows down on the weekend. It's not uh, always sorted as quickly as it would be during the week, and then Sunday things are closed down down here. So there's just an opportunity or a possibility that this could have been in the mix. It hadn't made its way through the proper sorting facility at the moment, and this could be linked to last week. Whether or not it's a copycat incident, that's what investigators are going to be looking at. The FBI will end up taking this down to their headquarters in Virginia. Uh, obviously, those other packages were all the same, so we don't know at this time if this one was similar to that one in any way then. Absolutely. We haven't been given any kind of in, uh, any kind of idea as to what uh, scans or x-rays might have looked like, but if this was like those other incidents and it was a PVC pipe you know, with, with, uh, with wires and potential powder and things inside, that's something that they may try to link back and say, look, could this have been from the person who's now facing all these charges? Okay, so considering all that's happened, uh, especially in your neck of the woods, how does this shape up or change the discussion heading into the midterms? Well, I mean, realistically, this shouldn't. These are incidents that are, you know, like a, a, a violent incident or an incident involving uh, mail bombs shouldn't become a politicized issue. They should be taken, you know, as a serious threat, as a terror threat against the country. And heading a week away from uh, from an election that could potentially change or shift things around in Washington, conversations will start up. But for the most part, people do have their minds made up when it comes to how they plan on voting in the election. Both sides are very hyped up right now. The Republicans, they think that the president is doing the best that he can, is doing a, a, a job when it comes to leading the country, uh, you know, on an economic way forward that's better than it has been in years. That's driving Republican voters out there. It's these situations that we're seeing right now, these shooting situations, the mail bomb situations, the hostility and anger throughout the U.S. that's kind of firing up the Democrats right now. And that's why we're going to see likely higher turnout in this midterm election than we see in years past. So how big an, an issue will the gun issue be in regard to this synagogue shooting in the midterms, do you think? Well, I'm I mean, it's it's going to be as strong as it is after any kind of incident like this takes place. If you think back to Parkland, if you think back to South Carolina, the conversation around guns, yeah. it kind of sticks around for a couple of days, a couple of weeks. It might be enough to drive more Republican, uh, more Democrats rather out to the polls to say, look, we need to get people in place that will do better when it comes to the laws and be able to stand up to the NRA. This could be a potential push for uh, the Democrats to further control the House when we're already expecting them to take some kind of control. Is it... Is life any different there than it was in the with the past president, Reggie? I mean, is America great again yet? Well, I mean, look, the, the president... Or is this he, just every issue that happens with every president and this is just the cycle we're going through? This is what happens. Well, I mean, any incident happens with any president. You see a big kind of national crisis happen uh, with each president that goes by, and it's just how they handled the situation is different. We had, you know, uh, George Bush dealing with 9-11. We had Barack Obama dealing with Sandy Hook. We had Bill Clinton dealing with Oklahoma City. These are all things that affected the president. They came, they spoke to their country, and they tried to kind of sew the, the, uh, the wounds together. This is a president who deals with things in a different way. He 
he sees something that happens, he tries to politicize it or he tries to make his own mark of it and, and speak to it. He, he often doesn't show any kind of sympathy or doesn't offer any comfort. That's just what we've come to see with this president. He, he's not really an emotional kind of person. So you have to take what he says with a grain of salt each time each one of these incidents happens. Reggie Giacchini has been with us, uh, with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News based out of Washington. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on uh, what Reggie's been reporting. Reggie, thank you so much for the time. As always, much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We talked to him many times, of course, uh, over the phone, but this is the first time in a long time we've had them. Have you been in here before live? Yes, you have several times. Uh, but it's been a long time. Marvin Ryder is with us, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Thank you for joining us. Happy to be here, Scott. Uh, before we get into the the, tra- the tariffs and Trump and whatever, <laughs> do, do we need a program to keep up with what's happening with life in the United States? I, I can't even keep my subjects separate anymore. I just bring in one guest and ask them about them all. Yeah, it feels like that. And it does feel like this all happened with the Trump election in 2016. We it's- can't blame him. Can we for this all? Well, in a way we can, because in the past, if a politician made a mistake, we could talk about it, digest it, we could make them apologize, and then we could put it behind us, and it would take us a week or so. With Mr. Trump, it's a daily occurrence that something happens, and before you can resolve one issue, two more have popped up, and so we just live in a very volatile time, and we have to come to embrace the fact that loose ends are going to be out there, and we'll never tie them all up. Uh, loose ends. That's, that's an interesting way to look at this. Uh, do you think America's questioning whether it's great again yet? Uh, so this election that's coming up in a week is, is actually going to tell us a lot about whether enough Americans are feeling that, wait a minute, wait a minute, did I buy a pig and a poke here? Did I, hmm. did I vote for making America great when it's not going to be great, or at least this person's not going to make it great again? And yet what I find fascinating is anyone takes a statement like that and they bring it down to some level. They bring it down to some point at which they can make a decision. Uh, Right now, for instance, there's this story of of now two, not one, but two caravans. I love that word, a caravan. It conjures up something almost uh, Asiatic or something, camels going through the desert with silk tied to their back. (laughs) Apparently it's 7,000 people from Honduras, and now they're being joined by 300 from El Salvador who are marching marching towards the American border because they want a better life. And uh, this is reminding the Trump supporters exactly why they wanted Mr. Trump and build the wall and keep them out because that's not right. And, and on the same time, I think to myself, there's that statue sitting in New York Harbor that says, give us your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. How are 300 people in a country of 330 million or so going to make any difference whatsoever? Or even the 7,000, uh, is this an opportunity to to show people to the world, in fact, that America still goes after the downtrodden. So this story, and each each week there's a different story. It's just another another sign that um, America is struggling with its identity on the world stage. Uh, and does anybody ask why the caravan started or why they're doing it? Do, do, do people think we just do this for fun? <laughs> well, I, hey, I, let's raise, you know, let's let's get on the news. Let's let's let's, let's rile up Donald yeah. Trump. Let's just walk away from everything. Yeah. Well, in the, yes, walk away from everything. That's a good point. So in Honduras, there actually is a serious reason. Some of these people feel they've been oppressed by the government, a government that is uh, less than democratic. Well, of in the way course it, there would be a reason. Right. How, however, oddly enough, in El Salvador, these 300 people that have now started to march are marching because they saw what the Hondurans were doing, and they kind of got together in a neighborhood and said, hey, let's go. Let's take them on. Let's, let's go on that way. That looks like a fun thing to do. How will all of this uh, whether it's it's the, the shooting, whether it's pipe bombs, whether it's tariffs, how is this going to affect the midterms? We were talking off air, and, and, and the prime minister's realizing this. You can't run your second election the way you did your, or your first second campaign the way you did your first. Although Mr. Trump is trying to do it the best he can. Right. And in fact, what he's doing is focusing on threats to America, whether those threats are um, the, these caravan people. And of course, he says, oh, you know, that caravan, those 7,000 people you look inside there there's isis there's there's middle easterners in there which is just a wink and a nod to say arabic people that seems to get people all worried and upset um oddly enough the pipe bomber seems to be somebody who is a a right-wing homegrown terrorist Mm -hmm. um 
And in fact, if you look at most of the terrorism in, inside the United States, it's been right-wing people, almost fundamentalists, yet he sometimes still finds a way to spin that, that it's an external threat that you need me to protect you from. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's really working on. Trump only knows one way to do things, and that is to make Trump seem like the hero for everybody, and you've got to keep me in power, or else if you let those Democrats in, well, well watch everything unravel at that point. Look, so he's scaring them to vote for him. Look, something's shiny, but can that... Uh, message that he started with that first campaign, will that run through the second campaign without fatiguing the electorate? At, at what That's point do they uh, become tired of this? Yeah, I mean, you ask a really good question. And, and up until about six weeks ago, I thought the Democrats were really going to roll over everybody on this election. But it started with the Kavanaugh hearings. And there are certainly people who felt that Mr. Kavanaugh is a champion of the right. We need this judge in the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court had gotten too liberal in the way it was thinking. And how dare those liberals attack Mr. Kavanaugh? And as much as I looked at Mr. Kavanaugh's performance and said, I don't know if that's a man I'd want to have on the Supreme, Supreme Court. Does he have the temperament for those people who believed you needed that voice? He proved you exactly the way it was. And so there's momentum that's gone, and Trump is trying to play off that momentum. I just don't know if it's going to be enough, but we'll watch next week. All right, let's move on to tariffs. Uh, There was a, a piece in the media yesterday, I believe, where dairy farmers in Wisconsin aren't happy with with the, the new NAFTA, that uh, that this hasn't changed the situation at all for them. So again, Donald Trump plays up. Oh, the deal's done. Everything's everybody's happy. Is this going to come back to bite him? Well, keep in mind, it hasn't been ratified yet, and they haven't even begun to hold the hearings on ratification yeah, in the United yeah. States. So that's not going to happen until the new Congress in 2019. Will things change then? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. So let me first start, if you can, rather than in, uh, in North Dakota, if I can move you to Mexico first. Also on the weekend was a story out of Mexico that the trade, um, I guess, ambassador of Mexico under the current government, remember this is the government we were rushing to pl- appease right. so they could sign it by December 1st, have said, we will sign no new USMCA until you remove all tariffs from Canadian steel and, and Mexican steel, Canadian aluminum and Mexican aluminum. All of a sudden, we have an ally in Mexico who says we won't sign. Well, that was why we rushed the whole thing in yeah. the first place. So was, is that going to make a difference? I don't know. And then the North Dakota farmers, I, I don't dispute them at all. The flip side is I also don't understand why the Canadian farmers were all that upset. Prior to signing the USMCA, roughly 3.25% of milk in Canada came from the United States. Now, yes, we've, we've dramatically changed that. We've changed it by 15% to 3.60, 3.25 to 3.60. It's not exactly like the streets are going to be washed with American milk. <laughs> yeah. And, in fact, the biggest use of that milk that's coming into Canada is not for us to go buy in a bag and drink it, because, by the way, America doesn't put milk in a bag, so they couldn't do that if they wanted to. It's industrial milk that we'd turn into yogurt and cheese and ice cream, so a little bit more. And some of that's going to get mixed with Canadian milk, and I have no idea how it's going to be labeled in the stores. So for those farmers in the United States who thought, good, now that we've got this, I can just produce as much as I want and there'll be a market for it, I think they've been quite shocked that this is not the milk and honey they were promised. So, obviously, uh, in regard to steel and aluminum tariffs, these were put on prior to the signing to yep. get everybody, to, you know, put pressure on everybody to, to sign and such. Why are these still in place? <laughs> uh, you know, even many said that, okay, even though it's not part of the original deal, it'll just be a couple of weeks and they'll be gone. Well, here we are. Well, I, I didn't think a couple of weeks, but I thought maybe a month or two. I thought we'd have it before the end of the year, and we still may have it before the end of the year. So, let's go back. Why were the tariffs put on in the first place? This was April 1st of this year that Mr. Trump put the tariffs on, and he was going to put it on the world because he felt the world was pouring steel into America and it was hurting the American steel companies. And for defense purposes, we've got to have a strong steel industry, so I want to keep it out. But I'll make an exception for Canada and Mexico because you're talking about the the new free trade agreement at that point, NAFTA 2.0. So that went for the month of April, the month of May, and by the end of May when we didn't have a deal, he said, well, I can't keep it going like this. You're going to be treated like everybody else. So on June 1st, everybody got the same tariff in the world. Well, while that's been going on, guess what's happened with steel prices? Uh, uh, it's not I wouldn't say specifically the United States, just global steel prices have more than doubled. Uh, from around 450 or so dollars a ton to nearly $1,000 a ton. So American steel companies are doing really well at the moment, and they're saying to Mr. Trump, don't, don't rock the boat. We kind of like the way this is all going. 
Um, now, we signed the new USMCA. Uh, and remember, again, into that one, there was saber-rattling that, hey, if you didn't like those tariffs, then you're not going to like the next round of tariffs I put on automobiles. So we dodged that bullet. We signed a side agreement on automobiles. And in that agreement, we agreed to quote uh, a quota of how many Canadian cars. But that quota is something like 30% more than we ship now. So it's right. not a, really a, a worrisome quota at all. And at the time, Christian Freeland and Mr. Lighthizer, the American person, said, this might be a model. We could do another side agreement under steel and aluminum. And we'll pick some kind of a number, and we'll make that number big enough that it doesn't really affect you, but it still gives us confidence you won't flood into the market. And also, in the meantime, Mr. Morneau introduced some rules that started to make it harder for other people to bring steel into Canada and then wave a magic wand and suddenly call it Canadian steel. I still think this is all possible. Now, the posturing... I'm both the Mexicans and the Canadians at the moment is no, no, no. Just take the tariffs off. We don't want to talk about quotas or anything like that. But clearly it's a market we want to get into. So they're still talking. I think we'll find a way. I, I still think it'll probably be some form of a quota system, but it'll be one that it doesn't hurt us at the moment. How can we have free trade and still have tariffs? And how is Donald Trump <laughs> positioning free trade for the future if he's threatening tariffs on not only us, but everybody? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, where does this go two years from now? <laughs> Three, five years from now? Well, Hopefully, well yes, yes. Well, another we, election by then. It, but, maybe, yes. So uh, we're missing an R. We're missing an R in this. It's not free trade. It's freer trade. Uh, yeah. Freer trade. In other way, uh, if I can give you the Donald Trump perspective on this, I want American goods to go anywhere in the world without tariffs, but I reserve the right to protect America's market from you by using tariffs. And he doesn't see that as a double standard, and he doesn't see that as wrong. Because they're bigger, they're better, they're we're, the you're, we're the market you want to be in. Yeah. You need us more than we need you. Again, a bit false. At uh, one point during this whole debate, Donald Trump said, well, Canada is such a marginal market for the United States. We're the largest trading partner, not Mexico, not China. We're so, uh, you know, his world has a funny worldview to it. And again, oddly enough, the people he surrounds him with just play up to that worldview. You talked about ratification of all of this, which still has to happen. Yep. So uh, are we going to be talking about this again in another 90 days? Are we going to, is, are, there still, are there still fights to be had here? Could be. So step number one is, will Mexico sign something by December 1? So this is almost this is almost November 1. So we've got 30 days, and we'll hear where they're going to come from this. The next Mexican president, a fellow named Lopez Obrador, has said he'd sign it. He doesn't have a problem with it either. So it doesn't seem like it's a big problem. But now this whole idea is, if we're going to sign it, those tariffs have to go away. Canada, this far, has not actually held any hearings on ratifying it. And I think, correctly, they're letting America go first. There's no point Mexico and Canada ratifying a deal that the United States is not going to ratify. So let's get them on the, on the, uh, the, on the record. And to that, you need to have a new Congress elected. So, yes, we'll be talking about this in 2019. But hopefully it's more about the ratification process, not a reopening of the deal. All right, let's go back to the midterms, which are coming up yep. uh, on the doorstep right now, uh, whether it's tariffs, whether it's uh, uh, the shootings, whether it's the uh, pipe bombs, letter bombs uh, a case. How does this affect the midterms? Does it? Because it seems every day there is another distraction that's mm -hmm. bigger than the one before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'll just add one more to your mix. So on Friday, we had news that in the third quarter of this year, the American economy grew at the rate of 3.5%. That follows the second quarter where it grew at 4.2%. Those two quarters are the best two back-to-back -back quarters since 2006. Mr. Trump, of course, is taking credit for it. And you can remember, I think it was actually Ronald Reagan who once said it's the, uh, it's the economy dummy vote vote on the strength of the economy. Um, it's not clear to me that this is actually caused by anything Mr. Trump has done. His big thing that he did was some tax cuts, uh, and certainly that may have stimulated some consumer spending, but there's been no sign that the American business community is spending money. So what happens in elections, whether it's the United States elections or even the elections we had here last week, the municipal elections, people boil these things down to an issue that decides it for them. They can't, they can't process 37 different issues and 37 different outcomes, so they say, yeah, I'm going to vote because... I don't know, I want to protect our borders, or I'm going to vote because I'm worried about domestic terrorism, or whatever it happens to be, and they'll find a way to simplify it, and that then becomes the problem, because once you start to simplify it, you can't be a candidate who, who's always on the right side of every single issue. 
Finance Minister Bill Morneau talking uh, about the economy uh, lately and, of course, going to put through a fiscal uh, report platform before they head into the the next year, heading into the next election. Uh, Do they have to... How concerned is he about the tax cuts in the United States? Do we have to mirror what they are? Mm -hmm. So I think the short answer is we've we've got to do something. Now, correctly, Mr. Morneau said, I'm not just going to follow blindly where Trump is going. And my example was, well, what if Trump cut all business taxes to zero? It'd be fun to go down that road, but how are we going to finance our governments if we just don't don't have people contribute something? So he's been studying it, and he's been getting lots and lots of feedback from the Canadian Chamber of Commerce and other people that says, do something to make the environment just a little more friendly. Keeping in mind that we already have among the lowest business taxes in the world, that's why businesses like to be here. So I think in his economic update, which is going to happen in a couple of weeks, he's going to hint at some tax changes, but he's not actually going to put anything until he gets to the election budget, which will happen in March of 2019. And then I think it's going to be one of these, you know, we'll, we'll cut the rates by a quarter of a percent this year and a half percent next year and something down the road. And he'll, he'll basically punt it down the road, but right. he'll be moving in the direction that the business community wants just so that we can say that we are not ignoring Trump. But now having said that to you, Scott, um, <laughs> even though we tout Mr. Trump's tax cuts, the current American government is heading towards a trillion dollar deficit in this year. I know people get upset with our Canadian government Mm -hmm. having a $19 billion deficit, but the rule is 10 to 1, Canada, the United States. So if we've got 19, they should have 190 billion. They have a thousand billion or a trillion dollar deficit. All this economic growth that was supposed to happen has not happened. That suggests that I'm not sure how sustainable those Trump tax cuts are. That's why Mr. Morneau wants to do a little something, but put it far enough down the road and give himself the wiggle room depending upon what happens there. Uh, the the new trade deal, the USMCA, was supposed to stabilize things. Uh, prior to that, businesses were, were uh, not happy with the uncertainty. Have things stabilized? So no, not until they get ratified do they stabilize. Now, what, what were they up, upset about? It wasn't the uncertainty, I didn't hear a whole lot of people under the old NAFTA being upset, but it did need to be modernized. Right. So we began a... But fi- the uncertainty of the debate. It was the 15-month process, yeah. and they said, is it coming to an end? Is it not coming to an end? Generally speaking, all the markets hate uncertainty. So the sooner you can get something to a conclusion, the better the markets like it. They now have a deal, and they, they don't seem to dislike the deal, but now the question will come to ratification. And if it looks like it's all going to come unraveled, then the markets will not like that. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor to Groot School of Business, McMaster University, in person. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Brent Sopel, who played 18 years in the NHL, won a Stanley Cup with the Chicago Blackhawks, was diagnosed with dyslexia at age 36 and was unaware even while playing all those seasons as a pro. He is now leading the charge for dyslexia awareness throughout North America and has set up the Brent Sopel Foundation, helping to educate and diagnose kids and their families living with dyslexia. Uh, And oddly enough, currently October is Dyslexia Awareness Month. To talk more about all of this, it's a pleasure to have him with us. Uh, Brent Sopel is on the line. How are you, Brent? Thanks very much for taking the time. No, thank you very much for having me. And I understand you were supposed to heat be here, but something happened with a plane, and you're back in Chicago. Yeah, we almost had a crash landing uh, in Chicago. We, had to, we circled Lake Michigan for about an hour before they got the, the fire trucks and the ambulances all out to the runway, but uh, uh, made it down, you know, in one piece. So that must have been quite a traumatic experience for you. What are you thinking when you're flying around like that? <laughs> Well, I, you know, I was trying to get some sleep. That's about the only time I sleep is on planes. So, like, huh, you're wrecking my sleep here. But, uh, yeah, it was definitely something, you know, all those good times, all those years in the NHL, I never uh, never had anything like that like this morning, that's for sure. Yeah, that's bizarre considering how much you travel over 18 years, I'm sure. All right, well, it's good enough to have you here on the phone, Brent. That's good enough for us. Talk about dyslexia. What is it? Well, you know, it's uh, it's something that's really... Uh, debilitating uh, if you really don't if you don't know what it is and don't have it you know our brains are, are wired a little bit different so when it comes to reading um, you know for an example any long word that doesn't spell and sound out the same way is just about impossible for me to get and you know when it comes to reading I remember I was last time I got tested which was 
you know, grade going into high school, I was reading at a grade four level. And, you know, I struggle with it every, every single day. And the mind-boggling thing about it is that it's one in five habit. Why did it take till you were 36 to diagnose this? Well, you know, it's, I, I'll, I'll put it on the times. You know, it, it's, you know back, in, back in the day, really, you know, obviously, uh, education system, medical system, they didn't know what a, a lot of it was. You know, obviously, we really know what it is now. Um, even though we know what it is now, it's still, you know, we figure about half the people in prison around the world have dyslexia. Uh, there was a study done in Texas where uh, everybody in that prison was was uh, was asked and studied. Eighty percent of them were functioning illiterate, and forty five percent of them were dyslexic. How were you? How are you eventually diagnosed? Uh, you know, through my daughter. Uh, my daughter was struggling and uh, took her in to get tested. Went through the whole neurology test and did everything and. Came back, you know, met met with the doctor, and her answers were it was just like, okay, that's me, that's me, that's me, and that's how twenty five percent of people get diagnosed is through their kids, because uh, you know, back in the day, like I said, they didn't really know what it is. So, wow. you know, we figured out twenty percent of the population has this, and it's hereditary. So, you know, I passed it on my daughter. Guess what? She's gonna pass it on. So and, it was when know, it was when you were at the doctor concerned about your daughter, and they diagnosed her that you realized you had it. Yep, you know, just you know, it's a it's worth a whole hour test they do all you know all these different things, and I'm looking at this way she answered everything. I'm just like, huh, that's me. And then as we started diving into this more and more, and started talking, and yeah, that's exactly how I was diagnosed. And I'm like, oh, and it was. It was a relief because everybody thought I was dumb, you know, thought I was stupid, mm. you know, you're lazy, you're just a dumb athlete, you know, you're going to go play hockey, whatever, and, you know, and that wasn't the case. You know, we worked so hard just to try and figure out what this word is, uh, you, know, we, you know, we worked 10 times harder than, than anybody, but in our own right mind, you know, we, we just learned differently, that's the difference is, 50% of the employees at NASA are dyslexic because that's what they want. Hmm. We, we kind of seen a 3D vision. So, you know, my goal is out there is just to, to really get awareness and understand that, you know, whoever has this, it's a gift. You know, there's, a, there's something called the Wilson Reading Program where you can teach kids, you know, how to read. You know, they just, they just learn a little bit differently. You know, I needed to see pictures and show me, but there's a reason why 50% of them are athletes. You've got a lot of musicians, architects, you know, a, little, a lot of hands-on work. That's the visual part of who we are, how we learn. Um, it, it's a gift if you can diagnose it at a young enough age and teach it. If not, you know, you, you start turning to things that aren't good because you can only be told you're dumb and you're only stupid and you're lazy for so long before you start turning to other outlets. And that's why I said, you know, over 50% of people in prison, you know, are there because of this. Which is, you know, you turn to drinking and drugs and, you know, things that you shouldn't, but you have no outlet because you. this is what you've been labeled. This is who you are. And when you're told that time and time again, you just start believing it because I still struggle today with it, you know, drastically. So athletics, uh, hockey must have been your savior growing up. Well, I'll, I'll put it, if I wasn't, if I didn't have hockey, you know, I would have been, I would be dead by now. No, 100%, no question. And it, that was my outlet. And, you know, the reason I'm out there telling my story and my struggles, I was in rehab and, you know, financially crashed because uh, nobody would hire me because right. I got these learning disorders. It's because there's, there's kids out there that are struggling with this and they don't have that outlet. You know, I was lucky enough to, to have that outlet. I knew that when I got on that ice, that I didn't have to <laughs> read a book. Yeah. I didn't have to do math. You know, that was, I could go out there and just kind of let it go. But there's kids out there that, that don't, they don't have that. And, you know, it breaks my heart. You know, we, we talk about politics, both sides of the border, your north and south. Those kids are our future, and we're not doing anything for them. 
You know, we're not out there helping them, not advocating for them, not not teaching everybody what this is because they are smart. It's a gift if we can just, you know, get them to understand, to get everybody to understand what it is. Uh, Brent Sopel is with us, former NHL player and, of course, uh, Stanley Cup winner. Uh, Brent, when you were with your daughter and she was being diagnosed with this, did you have this sort of epiphany that this was you when you were at that meeting? What did your... What did your doctor say when, you know, you're talking about your doctor or you're talking about your daughter and all of a sudden, hey, maybe you've got this, Brent? You know, we, we kind of went through it and, it, you know, it, during the whole thing, I'm just like in my head going, wow, you know, that's that's me, that's me. And then, you know, after we went through everything with, about my daughter and, and then I'm like, then we started kind of getting into more of my answers and what I saw of this and. And, and really kind of dive a little bit more into you know to to me after we took care of took care of her and like I said that's why they say about twenty five percent get diagnosed you know this way so uh, started talking about the doctor and she you know went and did did some stuff and she's like yeah you know absolutely you are and um, that must have been like a, a relief. That, that must have been like a five hundred pound weight off your shoulder was it a massive relief to finally figure this out yeah you know it really was. Because, you know, like when you're labeled uh, as a kid, you know, you're dumb. Come on, Brent, stop. You're lazy. You're dumb. Like just, just whatever. It, it weighs on you. You know, and I'll, I'll never forget, you know, for me, I was going grade nine, a couple of weeks into to school, uh, and an English teacher says, Brent, you know, can you stand in front of the class and read mm. this paragraph? Well, like I said, I still, I can think about it still today. It still scars me today. Mm. You know, I got up there, and the words that I was reading weren't even on the pages. Um, you know, kids were laughing. Um, you know, I end up telling kids, you know, in biology class, standing in front of class, you know, I started swearing at them because, you know, I didn't know how to handle it. Mm. And those are just situations that if you know that, you know, the kid has dyslexia, you can put them in a different situation to succeed. You know, whatever you know, whatever you are in, you need that boss to put you in a position to succeed. Well, if you if you know you have it, uh, you know the teacher's not going to stand stand you in front of the class and make you read. And hmm. it's the self esteem. That's what it all comes down to. And I I tell people all the time, my self esteem gas tank hmm. has never ever been filled up in my life ever again. Wow! Of all the scarring. Even even though I won the Stanley Cup, I did all that. That gas tank still is very very empty, and I struggle with it every single day. That being said, Brent, now that you have this diagnosis, and I'm guessing have the tools uh, uh, to move forward with this, does that alleviate any of that pain? Yeah, uh, you know, it definitely it helps. Uh, you know, it still helps. Uh, you know, some of it, you know, in technologies. It's come a long way, which you know, autocorrect and, you know, and certain things like that. But, you know, the autocorrect still sometimes doesn't help me because it still looks wrong to me, you know, just the way it looks right. at me. You know, so, you know, it definitely has helped. But, you know, that scars, you know, is still there, you know, for me to, for work, trying to write an email. Uh, you know, I spent half the time on the phone, on my phone, typing it out or asking Siri you know, how do you spell it? Right. And I got to go back and then I go back to the computer. So, you know, an average email where, you know, you got people that are typing, you know, 100, 125 words a minute, you know, yeah. sometimes I'm five. When you were younger and and having these these struggles, and I can just imagine what it must have been like for you, especially in school in the situations you're describing, did you realize something was wrong? Did you realize... That, that people weren't understanding what your problem was? No, because I... You were just so used to being told, you were just so used to being yeah. told you were dumb that you just bought into that. I bought into that. Yeah. Yep. And that's, you know, go back to that, you know, that weight lifted off my shoulder that we were talking about when the doctor said you had that. You know, that relieved some of that, you know, by knowing that, okay, all right, I'm not dumb. And that's, and that's why... I, you know, I'm telling my story because there's kids out there that feel the way I do, but have the ability to be a musician or mm. be an architect or do something amazing with their life. 
if we just can get them diagnosed and get them to understand, all right, you know what, you're not, you're not dumb. You're not lazy. We just have to learn a little bit different. And, you know, for example, I was, I was telling somebody the other day in one of my speeches, I could never figure out what gross money was right. and net money was for right. 40 years of my life. So uh, I watched a seminar with Richard Branson, uh, who had dyslexia, and, you know, he drew a net and had a fish, and he picked it up. He goes, yeah, this is your net money. So it took me 40, 40 years to figure out what net money and what gross money was, but I needed a picture of some fish, a net, and a crayon for me to, be, to understand what that was. Wow. What is the response when you get up and talk to people about this? Like, I'm sitting here with chills up my spine now. What, what, what is it like when you tell people this? You know, it's, uh, I get a lot of that. Because a lot of people don't know what it is. And I was, you know, cancer is one and two. You know what next is in line? That's dyslexia. You know, everybody knows what autism is. That's one in 60 or one in 65. So you look in a classroom, you know, most classrooms have you know, 25 to 30 kids. Guess what? You know, there's five, six, seven kids in there that have some sort of type of dyslexia. You know, maybe slight or maybe severe, but there's that many kids, and it's hereditary. So it's not going anywhere. So as we keep producing, you know, it keeps growing. So when I start talking about numbers and people, they just... You know, it's just, it's a process of me just getting out there and just talking about it because those kids, I know there's kids every day and every second that are feeling the way they are right now. And, it, you know, it pains me, but, you know, it's somebody's got to start somewhere by, you know, having the conversation. That's why I really appreciate you having me on today. You know, when you describe dyslexia, and obviously two different things, but it sounds almost like autism, the way we describe autism. And, you know, you're talking about lots of people who have it are very gifted and go on to accomplish great things such as you have. Um, but, but it seems like there's just a big misunderstanding about this. In, uh, about this. We, we just don't know enough about it. 100%. Yeah, definitely don't know uh, a lot about it. And, you know, and when... Uh, when I say the numbers, and same thing with autism, you say certain numbers, and people are like, you know what, really? Wow. You know, and there's, they go on to do some amazing things. You know, Richard Branson, one of the richest men in the world, uh, you know, Virgin Airlines, you know, the yeah. list goes on and on. He has it. Uh, Tom Cruise, you know, could have it, you know, a ton of people, but it's just not talked about. And it goes along with, you know, with mental illness that, Everybody kind of looks at it as a negative. All right, you know, you're not strong. You know, you're weak. Um, you're struggling. You know, don't say anything. Let's keep this under wraps. And, you know, there's a lot of great people out there that are leading the charge in that. And, you know, this, this goes hand in hand. And, you know, I had a conversation with a buddy of mine who, who's had depression all his life. And he's got dyslexia. Now, he doesn't know. He's like, all right, Brent, I don't know if... That led to one, mm. or one led to the other. Mm. But, you know, in my, my experiences, in my studies, the dyslexia, you're at birth. So you're told you're dumb, you're told you're stupid. You know, you, dyslexia kicks in when you're one year old, you know. You're trying to read, you know, you're learning these words. So at a very young age, you can look at your brothers and sisters or your friends that are succeeding at reading at a really, really young age. And that's that takes a toll on you when you're trying to, to build, that, build that character of who you are and what you're about, and you, you're looking over your shoulder every second. Are they doing it? Are they doing it faster? Can they read better than me? Why can't I? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Why? What's wrong with me? And that weighs, you know, as a kid, and I can tell you, you know, it just builds up and more and more and more to a point where, you know, a lot of times, you know, it turns to, like myself, you know, after hockey, I drank... Mm. And ended up, you know, in, in rehab and been sober, you know, over two years. But, you know, it took some ugliness, and I still have, you know, a lot of ugliness where, you know, I don't want to get out of bed for two or three days. Uh, you, you were saying, Brent, that you realized all this when your daughter was diagnosed. How can you help her to not go through what you had to go through? What What, what can you teach her in all of this? 
you know, so the good thing is that, uh, you know, we caught it, uh, you know, at a young age. And uh, there's, there's something called the Wilson Reading Program where you, you sit down, it's very slow and very tedious, but you almost go back to learning your alphabet. You know, it starts with small words with hat and cat. And you, you kind of almost start trying to rewire your brain and how you read it. So we got her into that. Both my daughters got into that. And, you know, my daughter, who, who's uh, in grade nine, is now, you know, at the top of her reading class in English. Wow. So you must be so proud of that. You know, I am I, I'm very proud of it. And, you know, I can stand by this Wilson Reading Program because I've seen the successes, you know, that it does. And, and I just had my nephew fly down here to Chicago to get him tested. And, uh, you know, we talk about math. Well, you know, you, got, you know, as you get older, these math questions get bigger and bigger. And Sally drove this far. And, then, well, there's reading involved. So guess what? You lost the kid on the first word. Because if you can't read, yeah. you can't do anything in life. And so this reading, Wilson reading program is, you know, you start, you get them, you get them, you start rewriting their brain. And they start reading, and you start their personality starts change. You just—it's like you know, sunshine every single day. They got no problem grabbing a book. Like I would never read a—I would never read a street sign outside. Mm. I would never read, uh, you know, a sign on a store outside because nine out of ten times I'm going to get it wrong. Well, who's in the car? Are they going to laugh at me? Are they not? So, yeah. how has this changed your life now that you know this? How has it changed you as a person? You know, it's, you know, I, obviously I haven't gone back and done that Wilson reading program because, you know, being the age I am, I'm not going to sit down and, and start back the, uh, you know, with the hat and the cat and mm-hmm. those words. What, what it's done to me is going to rehab really and, you know, getting the help from God to push me out there to, just to tell my story and my, you know, to, tell what I've gone through and, you know, financially where my struggles are, where nobody will hire me and uh, can't pay my bills. And, you know, I'm out there telling that story, not from, not for me, not for the sympathy for me, because there's millions of kids out there that can do some amazing things in this world that, you know, I want to help. And I've got, you know, my website and I get calls, you know, I get emails all the time. I get on calls with parents, teachers, hockey coaches, you know, whoever that is, you know, whatever that is, you know, anything I can do to to help one parent because a lot of times those parents are struggling worse than the kid. Mm. How did I give that to my kid? Yeah. How do I do it? What I do? Where do I go? What am I going to do now? And, you know, so I've had thousands of conversations with coaches and teachers and, you know, for the record, you know, I'll defend teachers. Everybody's like, oh, teachers, teachers, teachers are there to teach. They're not there to diagnose. Mm, good point. Now, later on, and you know, as I can hopefully be able to get the, the foundation big enough, then that's when you take it to Parliament yeah. and say, hey, why isn't there something in all colleges where they got to do one semester of learning disorders just so they have a broad view of it? It, it doesn't have to be, de- you know, so that, you know, that's somewhere I want to get so that every teacher that comes through will have some, you know, a little bit of an understanding, because a lot of them don't. If we, want to find out mo- if we want to find out more about the Brent Sobel Foundation, where do we go? Uh, BrentSobelFoundation.org. Uh, you can click on there. You know, uh, you don't need, i got a raffle going on for some hockey tickets out, out here in the, the Winter Classic in, uh, in uh, January 1st, 2019. But there's also a button there if you want to email me, if you've got questions. Please uh, don't hesitate. Um, I will get back to you. It takes it takes a little longer for me to read, so yeah. it takes some time for me to, to get back to you. But I will uh, I will get back to you. That's the Brent Sopel Foundation dot org. Joining us has been Brent Sopel, eighteen years in the NHL, including a Stanley Cup with Chicago. Brent, what an incredible story! Congratulations to you. It took a long time, but man, there's some that never figure this out. So good for you, and uh, and especially for having the courage to go stand up and tell your story and and help many more. I'm sure who uh, are listening to this story. Congratulations, Brent. Well, thank you again for having me on and, uh, and giving me this time to, to speak, so I appreciate that. All right, the Brent Sobel Foundation.org to find out more. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.